Welcome to Wrong Term Memory, guys. As always, my name's Jack, and joining me is Colin. How you doing, mate? You good? Hi, me. Yes, I am very good, and this is one of the ones I have most been looking forward to us getting to, because this guy is mental, absolutely mental, and a cracking tale. So, yeah, buzzing for this one. How's you? Yeah, I am good, mate. Looking forward to having a chat about Richard Ramirez, basically. Got lots of nicknames in the press. The Valley Intruder, Screen Door Intruder walk-in killer, but they eventually settled on the best nickname, uh, The Night Stalker, basically based on a 1972 TV movie um, about a police officer in Las Vegas. This is when journalists would sit and bounce ideas about, and I think they picked the... They got the right name because it is the, the scariest of those ones because, like, the screen door intruder, it's a little bit shitty. It is a little bit shitty, yeah. I think the Night Stalker is the one that you'd be happier with yourself, wouldn't you? You'd want to be called that, I think. That's what you want to read in the paper. Um, but Richard himself was, he was one of five kids. He was the youngest of five children. His father wasn't a US citizen and stayed in Juarez in Mexico, while Richard and his siblings and his mother lived in El Paso, Texas, and were American. Um, whilst pregnant, his mother worked in a shoe factory, mate, right? And the chemicals in the place were very, very strong. Health and safety didn't really count back then, and she'd almost had a miscarriage as a result of it. His other four siblings, Robert, Ruth, Joseph and Reuben, all born with birth defects due to this. However, he seemed to be okay. Seemed. Yeah, he seemed to be okay, but that seems to have affected the whole family because the first half of this guy's story is about what made him a psychopath because there are psychologists court psychologists that said he wasn't born a psychopath like a Ted Bundy for example but was made a psychopath by his surroundings, his family, his upbringing it might have been the chemicals thing like I'd imagine glue was quite a big thing back then like gluing soles onto shoes because he ended up huffing glue as a youngster which we will we will get to not just the chemicals, but Colin, because like he's a wee baby and a lot of shit kind of happens to him that maybe not an excuse, but a reason maybe for his psychopathy, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's it. If you're looking for reasons why he became the way he was and wasn't just born that way, here's a potential one. He was two and a cabinet fell on his head and it knocked him out and he suffered a severe concussion that would require, the wound would require 35 stitches. Uh, when he was five, a few years later, a swing hit him in his head and that knocked him out as well. Um, we know now how serious concussions are, Jack, and what they can do in the long-term impacts of them. So having one at two that was so severe, it required 35 stitches, and then getting another one just three years later, that could cause mad brain trauma for sure. Yeah, I think he developed temporal lobe epilepsy as well, so this has been quite strongly linked to childhood injuries and violence and aggression as an older adult, basically. A little bit of a loner because at uh, six years old he witnessed his dad leather the shit out of his brother Ruben and after that he kind of do anything to escape his dad and get away from these potential potential beatings basically. Yeah, um, he, he didn't go and play football, he didn't go and 
collect Pokemon cards or anything like that. Although, what he did was, at the age of 10, Jack, was smoke pot in the local cemetery. Um, so if you start looking at the kind of things that you kind of account to somebody like this, he starts sleeping in the cemetery, he's got a dysfunctional family, he's smoking pot, and he's had two brain injuries, all by the age of 10. Madness, is it? Like, like, as a normal person, sleeping in the graveyard's a little bit weird. Don't get me wrong, I used to drinking it when I was younger. I've got a graveyard around the corner from me, and it was somewhere quiet. We could go and get pissed, but I was never taking a little fucking nap um, amongst the gravestones, basically. Uh, I was getting pissed. He's fucking, he's getting stoned. Like, a lot of these guys, like, you hear stories about them having some redeeming qualities. Richard Ramirez pretty much a scumbag his whole life. There was one tiny little thing um, at school and he played quarterback basically. So he was a, not a jock but quarterback, that, that's a striker that's a number 10, that's a Harry Kane you know, that's like a cool guy, like oh fuck young Rick is pretty good at throwing that ball about and that's about the end of the good things about Richard Ramirez because the rest of his story is just fucked up. It is, um, and those good things end pretty much around the age of 12. He just chucks football, loses interest in it, and the thing he starts to get an interest in is sniffing glue. Somebody really bad appears in the scene as well, a guy called Miguel. This, uh, conflicting reports whether this is his uncle or his cousin, but this guy was a Vietnam vet. And quite possibly, Jack, a psychopath all on his own. He used to show 12-year-old uh, Richard his photographs. And these photographs were mental. They were pictures um, from Vietnam of women being raped and tortured by him. Bunch of dead bodies that he'd also quite possibly murdered. And he would tell them all these sorts of stories about decapitation, torture and rapes, etc. All that he'd carried out himself. So that's your kind of adult influence he was getting at the age of 12. Yeah, I don't think there's any I don't think there's any argument that Mike was a fucking psychopath. Like what why are you telling a kid that? The response from Richard was unsettling, to say the least. Uh, he would he would get turned on by these photos and at twelve you're hitting puberty, basically. So this is where there's like this sort of merging of sexual arousal plus torture photos and it doesn't become too separate urges it doesn't become an urge for sex and an urge for violence like we can get pissed off sometimes and sometimes I want to kick a door or get angry that's okay and sometimes I'd like my hole but when it merges into one like that this is it's it, it basically sets the tone for the rest of his career basically and not only does Mike show him these photos he starts to teach them certain things which kind of make him good at what he does as an intruder, as a stalker, basically. And that's stealth, disguise, knife work, etc. Because I think Mike was part of the special ops, so he was really good at being sneaky. Another thing he was really good at was showing uh, young Richard things he shouldn't be. And uh, at the age of 13, in front of Richard, Miguel shot and killed his wife in their kitchen. 
Um, at this point, it seems to be that any barriers to crime are removed, and Richard is pretty much surrounded by crime and bad shit at this point in his life. He starts skipping school and starts committing theft. He visits his brother Ruben in LA, who was a petty thief, and he started taking him on jobs as well. Ruben also exposed Richard to his porn collection, all at the age of 14. So he's just got bad, bad influences all around him, and he's now surrounded by murder, theft, violence, and pornography. Um, all things at 14 he shouldn't be getting involved with. Yeah, so not long after this incident that he's witnessed, um, the murder, basically, he goes to what you would think would be a safe place. You know, he's got four brothers and a sister, so he goes to the sister's house, Ruth, um, he wanted to escape the abusive father. Uh, it turned out her husband was a guy called Roberto as well, uh, Richard's brother-in-law, basically. He was a peeping Tom. He was a voyeur. He would sneak about town at night. He would sneak into people's houses and he would take Richard with him, basically. And this, obviously, he would replicate that behaviour in his criminal career Would would young Richard, you know, like... It's a safe haven, you would think. I'm going to go stay with my big sister. She's nice, but her husband's a fucking maniac. Jesus Christ. What hope What hope have you got? <laughs> <laughs> he then moves back to El Paso and starts back at high school, but he drops out pretty quickly. Um, his social group at school, such as it was, already knew that he was a criminal. They knew he was a thief. They didn't trust him at all. Uh, he also, at the age of 15, began to sleep with prostitutes, Jack, probably because nobody else would go near him because... He was absolutely filthy, disgusting, stinking as shit, basically. Dirty nails, dirty teeth, just a horrible wee bastard with no pals around him. Yeah, like, you you do things with your family when you're a youngster, when you're a teenager. I don't know. Go to the safari park. Maybe go to the zoo, you know. Sea life world or whatever. But no, his family liked hunting. uh, And not in the... He wouldn't hunt animals in the normal sense where he'd put the big loomy jacket on and like shoot them he would literally fucking stalk animals he would trail them he would close in on them and then stab them I just think that kind of shows how good he was at fucking stalking like can you imagine trying to sneak up on a fucking rabbit or a deer without making a noise and without startling it you must have been really good at being quiet and sneaking about and that kind of again impacted on his murder spree which lasted 14 months but we will get there because the first part of his story is pretty interesting yeah he leaves school at the age of 15 yeah he gets to the age of 15 leaves school and gets a job at the nearby Holiday Inn Um, he enters a guest's room and starts to sexually assault a woman thankfully the husband comes back and batters him um, but he ends up not getting prosecuted for this mate because the couple leave town and don't press charges Um. From the age of 16 to 17, he hangs about with Miguel again, who's released from prison. Now, just bear in mind, this is Miguel that shot his wife dead just a couple of years ago. He's already out of prison, and he's back in RR's life again at this point. Bad, bad times. How the fuck did he get out of jail? He shot his wife in the face, and he's out of jail within four years? Because you weren't there, brother. But Vietnam, innit? It'll be Vietnam damage system. They'll say, I'll blame it on that, I would have thought. I suppose, like, yeah, vets kind of got away with things, I suppose, or, like, he must have seen horrible things, so that's some sort of excuse for shooting your wife in the face. 
Richard gets to 18, sort of drifts about a bit, moves to LA. He wants to meet Anton Levy, who's a satanic author, basically. And they do eventually meet, and this is during the satanic panic um, in America, basically, which started in the, in the 80s, where there was thousands upon thousands of cases, in inverted commas, of people reporting satanic rituals and people were who were into Satanism were slaughtering goats and murdering people and doing human sacrifice and stuff like that. So again, that probably didn't help with the, the fear that Richard Ramirez would eventually create. Not only could he murder anybody, but he was a Satanist, and Satanists are bad, you know. Absolutely, so he's, he's 23 years of age, he's in California, heavily into drugs, heavily into Satanism and crime. His sister makes one last ditch attempt, Jack, to try and move him home and protect him, but he tells her no, he's quite safe where he is because he's got the protection of Satan. Um, fast forward to 2009, and this period is actually shown to be the first scene of his first murder, the DNA tied him back to that. Um, so April 10th, 1984, Jack, he murders a nine-year-old Chinese-American girl called Mei Lung. Um, what happened to her? Yeah, this is in the basement of an apartment building where he was living at the time, and it's in a, a place called Tenderloin, basically, which sounds like something you would um, quite like to eat. But um, this young girl was playing with her eight-year-old brother, supposedly loses a one-dollar bill, looks for it, and Ramirez approaches her and lures her back, saying, I know where your one-dollar bill is. So she agrees. Once her at the basement, he beats her, strangles her, and rapes her before stabbing her to death. The thing about this is, this wasn't proven until 25 years after the event. Like, this wasn't even a a consideration when they first arrested him. They didn't know that this was a thing, and it took them 25 years to prove this. You just got to feel the family, man, like, waiting that fucking, not knowing, and then, like, I suppose getting that closure, but it took quarter of a century, man. It's just sad as fuck. It's just absolutely horrendous. Really, really bad. Um, there are survivors in this story, and the one recounted being abducted when she was six years old. She explained that Ramirez had lifted her out of her bed in the middle of the night, put her in his car, and driven her to his apartment, where he'd made her crawl into a duffel bag before he took her inside and sexually abused her. He released her at a gas station later that night, telling her to call 911 so that her family could find her. We spoke earlier, mate, about the special ops training and all that sort of stuff. That kind of gives you an idea of what he was able to do, because he was able to get into a family's house, get a six-year-old out of her bed, and keep her quiet and get her out of there without arising suspicion. That's that is proper, like ninja style, ninja skills, I suppose. Yeah, th- this girl recounts the story in the Night Stalker, which is on Netflix. Basically, she tells this story about what happened to her, which is again a bit of an outlier, but because he didn't always kill people. He didn't always kill. He wasn't always doing that. Like there was no sort of rhyme or reason to this guy's crime. Basically, the spree starts in 1984. Basically, now he's drifting about in California, and then at 24 years old, he breaks into the house of a 79-year-old lady called Jenny Vinco, stabs her as she sleeps, and has his way with the corpse, steals from her, which he kind of does with not all his victims, but some of his victims, and basically says he spent it all on renting drugs. He stabs her that badly and that many times that he nearly decapitates her. 
So this is like a massive escalation. You know, like he's, he's kind of, he's been drifting, he's been doing what he's doing, and then boom, the first murder in his spree is fucking horrific, and it sort of gets worse from here, basically. Absolutely, yeah. Um, shortly afterwards, he kidnaps two children, aged six and nine. He sexually assaults them both, but he doesn't kill them. He releases them back again. And again, this, this remains a feature. He's got no pattern in terms of age. No pattern in terms of whether he kills them, or whether he even kills the right person. He just seems to kill whoever is in the room or the house he enters, basically. His MO is, he's a burglar, and he kills whatever he finds. Um, this means that it takes a little bit longer for cops to join the dots and he does leave some pentagrams at some crime scenes um, but they were also concerned at the time that he could be a copycat of Charles Manson um, but when his MO is so varied and so different it's not as easy for the cops at certainly at this time to start putting a pattern together and noticing links because this was at the sort of serial killer peak, uh, especially in America and California and stuff like that, so there were other serial killers kicking about and a few of them were leaving pentagrams, so they, he didn't particularly the police didn't particularly join the dots to link it all um, to this one guy, uh, it gets to March 1985 uh, Maria Hernandez sees her, follows her, she's, she's a good looking girl um, she opens the apartment, jumps out and shoots her with a point .22 she kind of fights back and holds her hand up so she doesn't get shot in the face and luckily the bullet bounces off of her keys she's got the the smarts basically to play dead and uh, he's pacing around the house looking for things to steal and unfortunately uh, Maria's got a roommate called Dale Okazaki, she comes down the stairs to see what's happening, she's heard what's going on she hides away and this again is where Richard Ramirez's training comes in. He like almost disappears by standing completely still in the dark. She pops her head round to see what's happening and boom, fucking shoots her, kills her dead, shoots her in the forehead, basically. And it doesn't finish there this one night that like this is kinda of pissed him off, so he, he goes on and he does another thing that same night. So he does. Well, we'll just tell your mother that uh, that uh, we ate it all. Wrong Term Memory has joined forces with Pie Sports at piesports.com. The pies are absolutely class. I love the Mr. Sings Chicken Ambala. That is so tasty. That is a good one. I think my favourite would probably be the macaroni, though. I prefer meat in my pie. That's what she said. <laughs> Deary me. So if I was to pick a second favourite, it would be the steak haggis and peppercorn sauce. It's not a bad choice for any of these pies, truth be told, Jack, because you've got things like the Dirty Mac, the mac and cheese with black pudding traditional scotch pie you've got the mr sings chicken and bala like we spoke about and if you like a bit of beef you've got the beefy bake the choices are endless and even if you're trying to lose a couple of pounds like myself and colin probably could there is the skinny scotch which has got 40 percent reduced fat sounds good and one of the best things about this company is you don't have to go to the bakers and stand in a queue with people full of germs to get these you don't have to go to asda you don't have to go to morrison's you don't have to go to tesco nowhere like that you go to piesports.com, you select your pies, you put in your address and they deliver them to your house anywhere in central Scotland. It couldn't be easier than that. As a listener, you get special treatment though and you can win a box of pies delivered anywhere in the UK. All you've got to do is look out for the hashtag WTMPies on Twitter or use our website wrongtermemory.com and fill in the form there and you could win a box of pies each week on the show. May as well pass to a couple of other Scottish legends. That's magic. Well, what's that? 
17 minutes ago, was it? Mm. We're in the house, minding my own business, lining my ribs, then boof, we're here on the high street, searching for the beefy bake. Oh. That is the power of advertising, Jack Boy. Mm. We are the mere puppets of your marketing bigwigs. Yeah, he's obviously annoyed, and within an hour of that, um, he pulls uh, a 30-year-old called um, Veronica out of her car in Monterey Park, shot her twice with a .22 caliber handgun, and then fled the scene. Um, she did get taken to hospital, but was pronounced dead upon arrival. Um, these two murders and attempted third in a single day attracted mad, mad media coverage. They started dubbing the attacker um, as being curly-haired, with bulging eyes and wide-spaced, rotting teeth. And that was when the names The Walk-In Killer and The Valley Intruder started kicking about, Jack. Yeah, so this rotten teeth thing kind of comes into it again with police either not doing their job right or just things just not quite working out right. There's a guy called Richard Mina. So he doesn't use his real name here, but he goes to the dentist, gets x-rays done. He's got really fucked up, infected teeth and they think, right, this guy's definitely going to have to come back. So they put two police officers in the dentist's office at the ready. He doesn't come back for a while, so the dentist suggests, look, why don't we stick an alarm in, and if Richard Mina comes back, we'll press the button, and you can come and get him. He does come back, they press the button, and fuck knows if there's a loose wire or something like that, Colin, but the press alarm, it doesn't go off. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so again, he's another serial killer just slipping through the fingers of the police. Like there's so many golden opportunities to nail these guys down, and they seem to let them slip away every time. Um, the the spree obviously attracted so much attention because it was intense and because of how quickly it happened. Jack, three victims in the one night. Um, they there was there was people um, all around. There was counts of. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults and 14 burglaries all basically looked at between the space of 14 months um, and this is when they started trying to pull it all together wasn't it? Yeah like a, because he didn't kill everybody so a lot of the survivors would be pleading for their life basically and please God please God and a few of them said don't swear to God swear on Satan, he said that to a few people so again this panic about Satanism being this really evil thing while he's going about murdering people there's no pattern again um, he's expanding from robbery into murder and or sexual assault, no trigger, no reason kids, beautiful women, pensioners, he murdered men and women, I think he murdered five guys as well, he killed without any sexual assault sometimes or just sexual assault to people who didn't kill them, racial boundaries unusual for serial killers, he would cross them white, Hispanic um, black, it didn't matter to him Like he was just a really twisted individual and it all points back to this basically getting made a psychopath by his upbringing, family X, Y and Z basically Indeed, and I suppose this is part of the mystique, isn't it? Most killers are in a box in terms of their victims. He has no type, he has no sort of planning. He sometimes did more than one home invasion per night. He often changed MO even on the same night. Some people died, some lived. And this terror really spread quickly because the image was being formed and the narrative in the media was no one is safe, absolutely nobody. This isn't based on age, sex, location, wealth, anything whatsoever. So if you live in this area... 
you're a potential victim. And that must have been quite scary at the time, Jack. Absolutely fucking mortifying, yeah. Gets to March 1985, he breaks into another house, kills a guy called Vincent Charles Azaza, uh, he's 64. The wife hears what's going on, she comes down, she gets fucked up, um, beat her to death, bound her hands, demanding to know where all her valuables were, he ransacked the room. Um, she escapes the bonds and like gets the shotgun from under the bed, pulls the trigger, click, 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 it's not loaded. So this pisses off Ramirez, so he just shoots her three times, gets a carving knife from the kitchen, mutilates her body, and then does something that is twisted as fuck. He cuts her eyes out, basically, puts them in a jewellery box, which she then took uh, when he left, basically keeping that as a, a souvenir. I don't think he collected a lot of souvenirs in that sense, but because she pissed him off, uh, he cut her eyes out, basically. Uh, not long after this, breaks into the Doy family home, uh, Lillian, is 56, and she's in a wheelchair after having a severe stroke. Um, her husband, he beats him to death so badly that that turns him on. So it's not even the sex, it's not about attractiveness, it's not about like a pretty lady, a, a brunette, a blonde, a Chinese girl. It's the violence that gets him hard, and because he beat up her husband so bad... He gets hurt and then rapes the the, wheel, the the lady in the wheelchair, basically. You know, yeah. just twisted. I mean, as it's meant to, like, Maxine that we mentioned earlier, who the shotgun didn't work for because it wasn't loaded, she was an attractive woman, and he actually said later on that he did want to have sex with her, but he couldn't get it up, couldn't do it. Then mm-hmm. he went to this other place, battered somebody so bad, he's able to get it up to rape a stroke victim that was in a wheelchair. So you're absolutely right, it's the, the attractiveness, the actual body, the person isn't the thing here, it's the violence that gets this guy a boner. Um, but after a series of frustrated failed break-ins, including one of an LAPD detective and the attempted abduction of a young female, he was pulled over by traffic cops. Um, the lead detective, a guy called Frank Salerno, who in the case slipped for a gun under his pillow and sent his family away to stay with family elsewhere. Um, but despite being aware of the car being looked for in connection with the abduction and the general description of Richard, the cop left this guy alone to go to his motorbike to write up a ticket. And what did RR do? He drew a pentagram on the car windscreen and ran off, and the cop never saw where he went. So again, he slipped through their fingers. Just, um, but that's cocky as fuck, man. <laughs> like that, that's a cunt at the wind-up. Like, not even just running away, like, oh, I've got a chance to get away. It's a case that he, he drew a little pentagram. And then fucked off, man, just like properly at the wind-up. The police did have fingerprints from the first murder, but amazingly there was no match to Ramirez for all his crimes. Um, he'd never been fingerprinted, um, despite being held in for burglary, petty theft, assault. Um, he may have been fingerprinted with some different departments, but they just didn't share information back then, which I've nah. always found bizarre. That just, you know, man, just speak to them. You're on the same team, but it's very, um, oh, it's my team, be your team, and we want to figure it out, so we're not sharing information with you. It just seems a really bizarre system that they've got over there at times. It does, and obviously the lack of like kind of statewide internet databases and stuff like that probably makes it harder to do it as well, but it's, it's worked for his for him there. He's managed to get away with it again. One thing they did have, though, was a footprint from a quite unusual AVR training shoe. Police looked through a bunch of spreadsheets from the company that distributed the shoes in the United States 
and only one size 11 and a half in black uh, the one that they found was manufactured um, evidence of this crime made it all the way up to the mayor a woman called Diane Feinstein and she would be a tipping point in the investigation um, she held a press conference where she held up a police sketch of the killer and went on to describe the evidence from all the cases throughout the state crucial information that hadn't been made public and by then investigators knew Ramirez was watching the news because he told a surviving victim already that I am the night stalker um, the information that the mayor gave up was the calibre of gun that he was using the type of shoe and the fact that he left footprints and this sort of put him on the road to his last sort of spree didn't it, he, kind of, he knew they are closing in on me so he just went one last mental ride Yeah it's August now 1985 he travels south in a, a stolen car, basically. He arrives at the home of James Romero Jr., who they've just returned from family vacation. The 13-year-old has been... I read this boy's story. He's been... He slept in the van on the way back, so he was up later than normal. Normally, he would have been trying to sleep, the boy. But he's up, and he hears somebody prowling about outside, so he goes to wake up his parents, uh, and Ramirez runs away, basically. But... They managed to get the colour making style a car and a parcel licence plate, which is 482T. This is another thing with Ramirez, when he gets pissed off about not... Hello friends, Colin here. The looks, the charm and the brains behind Drunk Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will so check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad free and lots of bonus content. Being able to do his crime, the next person who he meets is basically going to get fucked up real bad. Yeah, they really get it. And he breaks into the house with a guy called Bill Carnes, age 30, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, age 29. He goes in through the back door, enters the sleeping couple's bedroom, and he wakes up Carnes uh, when he cocked his .25 calibre handgun. He shot him three times in the head before turning his attention to his fiancée. He told her that he was the night stalker, and he forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists, and he bound her with ties from the closet. Um, after stealing what he could find, he dragged um, Erickson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewellery and got her to swear to Satan that there was no more in the house. Um, before leaving, he told her, tell them the night stalker was here. She then untied herself and went to a neighbour's house to get help for her severely injured fiancé. Amazingly, Jack, surgeons removed two of the three bullets from his head and he bloody survived. Yeah, she managed to provide a pretty detailed description of Ramirez, basically. They already knew he was fucking, his mouth was stinking and he had curly hair and shit like that, but uh, this additional description, basically, um, was one of the sort of final nails in his um, capture. Basically, he escapes um, in a stolen car that we were speaking about, and he makes a little bit of a mistake here. He tries to wipe the car clean, but leaves a fingerprint. They manage 
to identify it as Ramirez and they've got pictures of him, basically like real pictures, not um, pencil drawings and basically they release a mugshot of him um, to the media. Uh, the Night Stalker finally had a, a real life face and uh, they announced, we know who you are and we're going to fucking get you, basically. And Ramirez... He didn't fucking know that he was... He didn't know because he wasn't into reading newspapers, basically. Um, so he eventually does get captured, so he does, mate. He does, yeah. On August the 30th, 1985, um, it, it's further evidence that he doesn't watch the news, doesn't know his faces everywhere. He takes a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. Just completely unaware he's the lead story on pretty much every newspaper and television news programme across the state. He fails to meet his brother, so returns to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he be attempting to flee. And he's into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. And here's a bit of um, civic duty jack or mob justice would come up here, didn't it? Yeah, like a, a bunch of elderly women, um, Hispanic women, get a little bit scared when they see him and start shouting El Matador which literally means the killer in Spanish. He eventually looks at the front page of the paper, sees his face there, tries to fucking get away, runs across the freeway, like the motorway basically, attempts to carjack a woman and gets people to stop him, um, beat him up a little bit. He keeps running, but he attempts another couple of carjackings and he's eventually subdued by a group of residents basically and they batter him about the head with a, not a lamp post, like a fence post, basically, and the police turn up because they hear reports of, basically, somebody getting a doing, um, and they basically save Ramirez's life. They don't quite realise who they've got until they get him into the, the back of the car, but, mate. No, they don't realise at all. They just think they've saved somebody from a doing, and then they take a look at him and realise, fucking hell, we've got the... The killer here, um, and that was him done. Um, he looked up to a guy called the Hillside Strangler, a, a serial killer that Frank Salerno had previously apprehended. He admits openly that he's guilty, and he says the electric chair is his choice. He's sent away to prison to wait his trial. However, in a bizarre twist, mate, it becomes a pen pal of sorts with Sean Penn, uh, who he meets in prison because Penn was there for punching an extra on set. However, Penn eventually writes to him saying that he's an evil man and deserves a death penalty and that's the end of that short friendship. Yeah, that's a little bit bizarre getting arrested in the same day old Sean Penn. The jury takes a while to pick the jury. You know, that's a pretty much a thing in America where they get to sort of pick and choose and it's not until 1988. Quite a long wait for justice. Security's pretty tight. They kind of suspect that Ramirez might try and do something, a little bit wacky attack someday. And there are more delays because in a weird twist of fate, one of the the jurors, Phyllis Singletree, was shot dead in her apartment. And this sort of sets off a little bit of panic amongst the jury, um, thinking that Richard Ramirez was behind us. But two days later, the police solved that murder. It was our, our boyfriend, basically, who, who murdered her. But again, just adding a little bit of pizzazz to the case that one of the jurors was murdered. And you can imagine being on a jury and somebody gets murdered like that, you'd be shitting yourself, man. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You'd be terrified, especially when, you're, when you when you realise that the guy that you're going to be juring over is 
involved in the satanic cult and he's got all these potential dangerous friends that could be out to do, do, do stuff for him. Um, however, not everybody was scared. He began to receive letters from women, mostly of a sexual nature, and some even asking to marry him. Um, which is just another weird thing that seems to happen, mainly in America, when guys are in prison. Um, but going back to kind of how we started the story, he wasn't born a psychopath at all. Some guys psychiatrists believe that he became one later on in life due to just various elements coming together. His trial was a formality and he was found guilty in all accounts. He's sentenced to death by gas chamber and as he's led out, he says to the media, big deal, death always went with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. Yeah, he gets married um, when he's on death row to one of his pen pals, Doreen Loy. He's convicted of all charges, 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries, and they think that's maybe nowhere near his final total because like, there was tons of unsolved murders, especially in the San Francisco area. Round about that time, he dies in jail, um, complications, um, B-cell lymphoma, basically, um, but this is due to chronic substance abuse and hepatitis C, a viral infection that he's got just through drug abuse, basically. 53 years old, he'd been in death row for 23 years, but by some estimates, because of the appeals process in California, he probably would have still been alive, maybe, uh, and probably wouldn't have been executed till he was in his 70s anyway, mate. Before we wrap it up, why do you think he... I suppose we've kind of covered it, but why... Why has he got a Netflix documentary, basically? Because once you... Once you get there as a killer, you've, you've kind of made it in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> you do. He's got a Netflix documentary because he's got something about him that's interesting, which kind of stands or stands out from the crowd. He's not just a he's not just a guy that killed seven women and that was the end of it. He had a proper serious murder spree where anybody was a potential victim. There nobody seemed safe, and he caused absolute fear and panic for a long time. Um, like we mentioned earlier, he crossed all boundaries of race, age, attractiveness. He would kill, attack or rape anybody from age of 9 to 79. The actual person wasn't the trigger to him. It was the violence before it that got him got him, got him, turned on and wanting to do this sort of stuff. In terms of white people, Hispanics, Asian, couldn't care less. He would sometimes kill people, he sometimes wouldn't. Um, he just seemed to do whatever he wanted or whatever the mood took him. And that made him frightening scary but also very very interesting and that's why he's on Netflix and places like that that's why there's movies that's why there's loads of books and it's why two guys like me and you are sat talking about him yeah he is interesting and just at the time the satanic thing was very much in vogue and you've seen pictures of him where he's holding up his hand and he's got the wee pentagram drawn in his hand and stuff like that and he just looked like a a drifter, Jake type guy and yeah, very, very interesting and the next docu- documentary is quite good on Netflix so I'd recommend that you go and watch that if you've not seen it. I'd also recommend that you go and leave us a five star review. Um, you can also buy us a drink at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wrong term memory, Colin. I've enjoyed it as always. Yeah, always good fun. Um, it's, it's always good doing the research and 
bring it to life and I enjoyed reading through it with you because I think it adds a little extra element to it. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Hopefully the listeners have as well. Right. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.